Hey guys, I wanted to let you guys know that we did have a little bit of an audio issue on this one, so if you could please excuse our poor audio on our end, and please listen to everything Amanda has to say. We had an awesome episode about gopher tortoises, so I hope you enjoy, and I hope it doesn't hinder you too much. We must have been off of our game, because we made a mistake on our first show back, but I hope it's still listenable. Thank you guys. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. So, it's been a while since we've done this. Yeah, I guess we should explain ourselves. We took last week off because we were in North Carolina with family for Easter and then some other things happened and some other things happened and then uh well here we are (laughs) here we are so uh basically I want to and I didn't get to talk to you about this yet but I want to extend the OCIC fundraiser a week I was wondering because it is May 1st tomorrow yeah because I wasn't able to give it the push that I wanted to in the last week obviously because all the things that came up last week and just Easter in general so yeah, it's Easter. It's all Easter's fault. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. So I just wanted to give that some more time because I want to make a YouTube video ex- kind of explaining some of the things, not explaining just that, but introducing it so that the people who watch us for the actual YouTube videos get a chance to buy them as well. And I've been slacking on the video front, so. Okay, so for another week, you can buy <laughs> the uh, shirts we're selling on our website and all the proceeds benefit the Orient Society. The Orient Center for Indigo Conservation. Oh, sorry. You got to be specific. Or, uh, true. The OCIC is that. So the OCIC propagates uh, Eastern Indigo snakes and they re-release them into Florida and Georgia. And if you want to learn more about the OCIC, you can listen to our podcast with Michelle Hoffman. She is the director of the OCIC. And so you get an idea of what your money would go towards and all the great work they're doing. So check out the shirt, porcitypythons.com. Other than that, we don't really have anything else going on. Our snakes ate all of their own eggs. So No, we suspect. No, I know. <laughs> Joe says he's certain. I am the hopeful one. Um, when we left for the weekend, last weekend, the hognose was started laying eggs. And the novice one in this relationship didn't know there was she was going to eat them in the 24 hours that we would be gone. So Joe is convinced that she ate all the eggs she laid. Oh, I'm 100% no for sure. She had an egg out and then it's not there. And then next time she went to the bathroom was the weirdest. Oh, what did it look? oh okay. So you didn't tell me that. Part. Okay. It was like, it looked like paper pulp. Like, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like pulp, like it was grayish, whitish. Um, it was disgusting and it smelled really bad and there was a lot of fruit flies so but she definitely had an egg it looked like it could be fertile but probably infertile and And I didn't know for sure because I didn't want to disturb her when she was laying and then we were leaving and I didn't get a chance to really check out things but you know yeah just another year down the drain with the uh Second year down the drain on those and adds to my dislike of them. But other than that, the corns, um, we put the lay boxes in there today. So hoping for some eggs. 
the Kings have still done jack shit. Well, and that's how I feel about Kings. <laughs> Other than that, Louisiana Pine Snakes in pre lay shit, so that's a big one. I don't even know what to expect from that. I don't know either. Um, Probably four giant eggs and. Four scary, bitey babies that'll come and out. Four that I'll probably keep them all. Yay. So, <laughs> so excited for Pine Snake babies. Um, okay, so this has been a very long intro. Yeah, it has. This is terrible, but we had to do some some spring cleaning and catching everyone up. Um, but you want to introduce our guest? Today's guest is biologist Amanda Hips. Amanda, you may know her as Biophilia Amanda on Instagram. She does research and work with gopher tortoises and what she calls shit bugs, which I'm not sure exactly what that is, but we'll get into that. <laughs> so we don't know much about tortoises, but we're really going to go for it today. You got it? Go. Oh. I got it. I oh, got it. Well. How long did you think of that oh, before you yeah. said it? I I'll say it long. It's a pun. So Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Could you give us a little overview yeah. of uh, what you do? Yes, absolutely. And let me know. I'm sitting outside, so if you hear background noise, I can easily move inside. Let me know if it gets annoying. Um, okay. Um, well, so I work with, I'm a grad student at Florida Atlantic University, and I'm studying gopher tortoises, and I'm really concentrating on the animals that live inside of their burrows. So gopher tortoises are uh, an, a tortoise species here in the southeast coastal range and of the United States. And um, they dig these long, extensive burrows, um, and they can be up to 40 feet long. So there's a lot of other species that are using these burrows, um, and a lot of them are snakes. Like, you, I'm sure you know the indigo snake that uses the burrows, um, and mice, and other lizards, and frogs, and all sorts of things. Birds are another one. Um, and so we kind of threw out this number of over 350 species uses these burrows, but it's a lot. It's, a, it's hundreds of animals that are using these burrows, but the majority of them are insects. And we don't really concentrate on the insects. We don't really think much about them, but there's a number of them that actually have co-evolved alongside of them. So they're um, using these burrows for um, like basically eating the gopher tortoise poop. <laughs> um, so they're, I like to call them the housekeeping service. So gopher tortoises are just kind of these like, you know, stinky animals. They're pooping inside of their house um, quite often. And so something needs to come in, in, in there and clean it, right? So there's a number of insects. There's about 13 that we know of that clean, that will eat the poop. And they're also eating other things like um, other insects, other pest flies, um, other detritus and things like that. So that's what I'm looking at. I'm just, uh, we've never really looked at them in Southeast Florida. So they've mostly been um, studied in North Florida, um, Central Florida, along the Lake Wales Ridge, but no one's ever really looked at them here. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure out what's around here and, and you know, figure out if we have the same species or potentially maybe there's another species that we haven't discovered yet. So cool. That's so what we're I'm gonna get, we're gonna get deeper on the gopher tortoise stuff. But yeah, first before the, before the I get carried away with <laughs> no, 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 but before I get carried away with asking about gopher tortoise, how did you get interested in herbs and were you interested in herbs right off the bat? 
Um, yeah, you know, I've always sort of been interested in tortoises, but I don't really know how how that started. Um, when I was young, I um, I kind of got into reptiles, um, and so I had adopted a Silcata tortoise at the time, and um, I still have him. I've had him for a long time, so um, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure where it started, but um, I ended up going to um, school at University of North Florida and um, thought I wanted to go to vet school, so I had kind of framed my whole education towards vet school. And then I started working at the Jacksonville Zoo. I was doing an internship um, there at the animal hospital, and it was mostly wildlife rehab. So seeing a lot of gopher tortoises come in, and most of them were hit by cars. So I was spending a little time in rehab, rehabbing these tortoises. We'd rehab and release. And I don't know. I just, I really loved working with the tortoises. It was like one of my favorite animals to work with. And um, that's when I decided I really wanted to work with them more from an ecological perspective rather than in the hospital. And so I started doing a little bit of research and found out that right at my university, um, there was a professor there, Dr. Joe Butler, um, who was studying them. And so I contacted him and I was like, hey, can I come out in the field and join you for a day? And then that's when I realized I didn't want to go to vet school. <laughs> so, oh, so it kind of like changed my whole yeah, you specifically went for the gopher tortoise. Yeah, yeah, I really did. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I've always been interested in herps. And, you know, after that, I actually went to Madagascar and I um, concentrated on snakes there. Um, so I don't know. I, I've i really liked them always. I'm not sure. I've kind of just always liked weird things, like the things that people don't like. So I've always really liked bugs, um, reptiles, just, I don't know. <laughs> so what did you do in Madagascar? What kind of animals were you looking at? So I got the opportunity to work with everything there. Um, main part of my internship was working with reptiles. Um, and so I did my own research project with snakes. And so I was looking at um, snake species between Nosy Bay and Nosy Comba and um, just diversity. And then um, I just got to be a part of other projects where I was also working with chameleons and um, other reptile species. And I did a little bit of lemur stuff and a little bit of bird stuff. And <laughs> I got to do a little bit of everything. So it was a really cool opportunity to kind of figure out like what I really enjoyed. So how long were you there for? Uh, four months. Huh. So as like a day to day, what are you doing in a situation like that? In Madagascar? Yeah. Um, so day to day, I, we were living in a village, um, and living in huts and it was just like two huts where it was just a group of people, um, all kind of doing the same thing. And so we were all basically working on the same projects. Um, and we could choose to do our own if we wanted to. And so that's when I developed the project that I was working on. Um, day to day, we'd get up in the morning, we'd do birds, like first thing, like before light. And then, um, we had different, we had like, I think if I remember correctly, there's like 13 different sites and on the, on Nosy, uh, excuse me, Nosy Bay. And then, um, yeah, we just, we'd get up like each day we had a different site that we'd work at. And so first thing it was birds. And then we come back, um, have a quick uh, rice breakfast and um, 
go out and do like active searching for reptiles. And so we were just mostly recording diversity for everything. So I think people will be mad if we don't ask. So did you find any um, Sanzinia or ground boas or anything mm -hmm. like that? Yeah, yeah. I found several of those. Um, my favorite was uh, the Langaha. I only found two of them. So that was like one of the most rare ones. Um, I'm not sure what that is. Is there a common name? So, um, I don't know. I think I think I've always just known them as the Langaha. Um, but it's basically it's a it's a snake, maybe a leaf nosed snake would be a common name. Okay. That so yeah. So the males and females um look different. So the males have just this like long snout nose and they just look like a stick. So I usually saw them hanging out in the mangroves and they just looked like part of the mangroves. It was amazing. Um and the females have like a snout that looks pretty similar to a stick or like a leaf. So yeah, it was yeah, really I just looked up a picture on Google. It's very yeah. interesting. Let's see if we can get uh, it on. So yeah, that's what yeah, in the hobby good. I've seen that as a Madagascar leaf nose snake. Yes. Okay. That's the common name. Cool. Yeah. So that was my, I don't know. For me, that was the most exciting. I really loved finding the ground boas too. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So were those, were those rare in a sense? Or I know you said that they're rare, but were they rare where you were? Um. Yeah. So unfortunately, we would usually see them in town where people were selling them. Um, so when we went back to town, um, to Nosy Bay, it's called Hellville. Um, yeah, normally it was, it was like people just selling them on the streets. So that was like most commonly where I'd see them, but I did see, I think I, there's, I think, like, at the actual location that I was staying, we went to, like, different sites in different islands. But the main location that I was staying, I think I only saw them, like, three times. Um, but that was, like, pretty heavily trafficked. Like, there was a lot of, like, people passing through those trails. So, were they Were they selling them for, like, hides or meat? Or what were they selling them for? I'm truly not sure. I think, I think, um, I don't think that they ate them. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of meat on that little thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's possible. I'm I'm honestly not sure. I'm not sure why they were selling them. But usually I like I think because it was so touristy, like that's the most touristy part of Madagascar. I kind of assumed that it was for the pet trade, but I could be wrong. I'm really not sure why. Interesting. So it could be it could be for food. Yeah, I mean it, are you seeing like I'm sure you saw all types of animals for sale. Yeah. I did. Um, we saw a lot of animals for sale, um, a lot of um, sea turtle shells and things made out of sea turtle shells. So, yeah, that was the kind of sad part of it. Yeah. Now, I mean, we had um, our friend Greg and he he like has these pictures of like all these crazy cockfights and bare knuckle boxing matches in Madagascar. And crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Were you that, so all that? What's that? Were you exposed to all that? I actually didn't see very much of the cockfighting or anything. I didn't. Um, but yeah, for I was exposed to a lot, a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like obviously a pretty big culture shock for, <laughs> for yes. a lot of people. <laughs> it's so true. My family um, is in Puerto Rico, and so cockfighting is still a really big thing there. So I feel like it's it's weird because it's something that I grew up not actually 
seeing or going to, but like just seeing like these are just big buildings with like cockfighting and it's just normal. It's like what people do on a Sunday night, you know? <laughs> and it's just it's really sad to see, but Yeah, and it's it's really weird because like we always ask people about that kind of aspect of things and I mean, as a visitor to someone's country, I think you can't really say anything about their cultural norms. I mean, they're obviously different than ours and they're living completely different lives than us. Yeah. It's hard not to, or it's it's hard hard not to judge inside. You feel right. You feel like it's wrong. Like cockfighting feels wrong to us, but that's because it's not our norm. We also have giant factory farms with thousands of chickens right next to you. You know, we do bad stuff too, but it just seems. Mm we justify it, I guess, in our own way. Right. Yeah. But other than Madagascar, um, have you done any other traveling? Um, not for, not for things like this, not for like work or internships. No, not really. But, I, mean, I, mean, I have been to like don't... Thailand and, um, but I haven't like gone on herping trips. Gotcha. No. Well, you don't really have to travel when you live in Florida, so. <laughs> it's so true. I do feel like I live in like just this awesome biodiversity hotspot. So, I so as, as far as research like you're doing, um, kind of, are you doing radio or radio telemetry or are you just looking at different pearls? Like what are you doing exactly? I wish I was doing radio telemetry. Um, I'm not. I do know people who are, and some of the work that comes back with that's so interesting. Um, but the work that I'm doing is um, just mostly exploring burrows and recording any animals that I'm seeing. So I have cameras set up at the burrow entrances, um, camera traps, and I set them up like two meters at the entrance, like in front of the entrance. And so I've gotten a lot of cool things on that. Um, gotten some spotted skunks which are known to use burrows um but i didn't know that they're at at one of our field sites so i have a really urban field site that's surrounded it's a greenway surrounded by um this residential neighborhood and there's a lot of people passing through uh walking their dogs and running and biking and stuff and so it's really active um but we found a lot of spotted skunks we recorded them um gosh what else have i found found diamondback rattlesnakes and coach whip snakes and box turtles using the burrows, um, lizards and so many toads and frogs. So, yeah, so that's like one portion of it. And and then the other portion is, um, just like setting up insect traps or like really just going in there and like actively searching for insects and being halfway in like (laughs) inside of a burrow. So, yeah, it's been like a lot of work and a lot of field work. The field work has been really intense because it's like, you know, I have to try and be out there at different times of day because I don't know when some of these insects, we don't know anything about their natural history or their location, their range. We have no idea. So it's really just like some of them are attracted, you know, visually by the burrows and some might be attracted just by like the scent of the poop or um, so it's just like hard to just I had to be creative and like figure out like different traps and like what could work and what couldn't. And so I was like messing, like I would take pantyhose and get her, like go around my field site and just look for tortoise poop and like stuff these pantyhose with poop um, and kind of toss them back into a burrow, like tie the end outside of the burrow and then like toss the rest back in. Um, 
And that was really effective. But I was like, you know, that was like a trap that I had to check really frequently because I was worried about, you know, tortoises getting entangled. And in the end, it wasn't an issue. They are really good at just like cleaning out their burrows. And so like anything you put in there is just gone within a few minutes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They're really clean in that way. But um, yeah, setting up funnel traps. So I would take water bottles and like set up a funnel so that insects could just like crawl in and fall in. Um, I set up um, a coyote Wiley inspired trap where I took a, um, like a shoe box, like a plastic shoe box. And then this, um, plastic paneling and I would create like the shape of a burrow with it. And so it's just like blacked out and it looked like a burrow. And then, um, it was placed over this box. And so like when a fly or a beetle would fly into it, it would fall in, like it would be a slit open at the bottom. So it'd like fly in and like fall in. If you're thinking of um, Coyote, uh, Wiley Coyote, <laughs> um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you watched I'll the cartoon. I never watched. I never watched that. You did it. Okay, okay. So that's like a bad analogy. But basically, it's just like painting this like scene on a wall and like trapping something. Um, so that was the idea behind it. Um, what are you hoping to gain from finding the insects that are you feasting on the poop? Yeah, well, so I'm really just wanting to know what's here. So I want to know if the same species are here that are potentially in North Florida or in Georgia um, or in Central Florida. Or, um, so I'm just wondering what's here. Mostly I'm just doing a general survey um, just to find out. And then also what kind of habitats are they in? So I have right now I'm working in scrub and flatwoods and I have three scrub and three flatwoods sites. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out, do they prefer one site over another? And right now I think what I'm finding is that the majority of them are in scrub habitats. They really like that high dry land. Um, yeah. So really just get a better idea of their natural history. Where are they? What do they prefer? Um, you know, does it need to be fire managed or like what kind of management do they need? So, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just wondering, like as a graduate student, is most of your research very self-directed? Do you kind of have free reign of like what and when and how and all the kind of things you're going through? Yeah, I think I've been really lucky in the sense that my advisor's been very hands off. And so that's really great. Um, In the sense, like I can create, like he's been just, he's been um, a great, like really great at guiding me into like figuring out what I want to do with it. Um, but yeah, I, a lot of it's just been like, I've just made this up and <laughs> kind of run, like just taken it and run with it. So, um, yeah. And do you have others who work with you? Cause I can only imagine like after you're doing all that field work, then you have to take it and actually like, you look want at someone to dissect micro- the shit. Oh my right? God. <laughs> you gotta go look under my, these are insects. Yeah. I love it's you for bringing this up because this has been like, the nightmare of the project. So I'm like, the field work was so much fun. And I've gone out and I've like surveyed a total of, I don't know, 150 burrows and collected so many insects from each of them. And so I'm like, I have hundreds of insects to identify. Um, And so it's like all of a sudden, like overnight, I'm having to be this like expert entomologist in like all of these types of different insects. And so um, that's the part that's really frustrating. 
Yeah, I'm getting help from people. I do have some that's helping me identify ants. Um, and so I do need, I'm looking for someone to identify, help me with um, mites. That's been like a really hard one because I think I have several different species of mites. Um, but yeah, it's like, that's been really hard. Like now I'm mostly just working in the lab and like looking under in, under microscopes at these insects um, and trying to figure out like some of its identifying, um, you know, distinguishing from two different species of beetles. So one is literally measuring the length of the spine on the back leg. And that's the only way that I can tell yeah and it's a two millimeter beetle so you can only imagine how big that spine is so (laughs) it's really frustrating um it's been a lot of work like I've really enjoyed it and I've learned a lot but it does feel like I'm like kind of just I don't know (laughs) just kind of like trying really hard to like figure this out on my own but but people have been really helpful and I've gotten I have gotten help from people on a lot of stuff so and are the gopher tortoises, do they seem to benefit from these bugs in any way? Yeah, we think. So that yeah, they have a clean house. Yeah, clean house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do think that it's enough, it's something that hasn't been studied, but kind of like a lot of um, dung beetles that we already know about, um, we do think that they're reducing parasite loads. So we do, one study has shown that um, the poop inside of burrows because this is where all of those insects are found is only within the burrows but that poop is actually just being cleaned out quicker and disappearing a lot faster than poop found outside of the burrows so like when we find them on a trail outside it's not you know getting cleaned up as quickly so yeah so we do think that there's you know potentially producing parasites for them okay a silly but weird question (laughs) you're walking out in the world and you like oh, i'm so embarrassed for this thought you like <laughs> saw poop like can you identify that it's like do you know what different animals poops look like now can you yeah i mean it? i feel like for the poop in my area i feel like i've gotten really good at it um <laughs> but i feel like when i travel and i'm just like what kind of poop is this like i i'm <laughs> but now i take an interest in it like now i'm just like oh like like okay if we had an opossum poop in our yard and I knew it was a possum poop, but now I'm just like looking at it and I'm like, there's a rainbow scarab beetle on this poop. And this is not something I would have ever really like thought to look at before, but it was really neat. It was just like this beautiful green rainbow scarab beetle on this like really smelly poop. But it was just like amazing. So, but how did you know it was an opossum poop? What's that? How did you know that? You have to taste it. <laughs> <laughs> So we actually caught it in a trap. And so that's how I knew it was because we had to release it. But um, yeah, so I did know it was an opossum. But I've been able to like start picking up like on like the scatology. Yeah. (laughs) So while we're on the subject, I mean, gopher, I mean, they essentially eat mostly vegetation, right? Yes. Yeah. Mostly vegetation. I do catch them. um, Like occasionally people have caught them eating um, uh carcasses <laughs> um i do see them eating dog poop quite frequently um they do eat bones we we find bones in their poop pretty often especially for the females and the young tortoises they need that calcium um so yeah but mostly just mostly just grazing on grasses and low shrubbery low vegetation is there anything like like you had mentioned I can imagine like a mother who's trying to calcify eggs or a mom that needs to put on weight. I mean, mm-hmm. do they 
more frequently eat, you know, protein and meat? So I don't know who's eating protein, and I'm not sure that anyone studied that, and I could be wrong about it. Um, it might have been studied in a different species of tortoise because it's not uncommon for tortoises to do that. Um, but yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. We do know or what we're finding, and this is an ongoing project that my advisor is working on, is that um, some, especially like we're seeing with the females and the young ones, we've um, x-rayed them um, to see what kind of calcium deposits they have in their gut. And um, so that's one thing that we've picked up on is it seems to be pretty common in, in females and juveniles. And these are like big burrows. Could you give it an, an idea of how big a burrow is and how does a tiny gopher tortoise dig a giant burrow? So I'm still like every time, I don't know, every time I've just um, like watched them dig, I'm just like, how do they just do this? It's like, it'll take them a day to dig out a brand new burrow, just a day. Um, and they're kind of always working on it. And so, you know, over time it gets deeper and deeper. Um, but yeah, so they, um, gopher tortoises have these, um, like shovel like hands. Um, so it's really flat and really broad. Um, and that's like, even compared to other North American tortoise species. So like the desert tortoise, um, they are burrow diggers, but the gopher tortoise like just has, um, it's more tied to their burrows. And so they are sort of better diggers. Um, but yeah, so they, I mean, these burrows can get up to 40 feet, sometimes longer. Um, I have a camera scope that I use to send down these burrows and I'll measure them. And I can also just get video or a glimpse of like what's going on inside or other animals in there. Um, and so a lot of times it's longer than my scope. My scope goes up to, I think, 30 feet. Um, and sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're only like 20, but yeah, I mean, like, it's just amazing to see them, you know, 40 feet long or more. Um, tall little kids trying to dig to China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you just Google pictures of like people doing, um, relocations and they have to like for these relocations, when they have to relocate a tortoise from one site to another, um, they have to dig them out of these burrows. And so they'll use this like major equipment to like have to dig this like massive burrow up. And so you can see people just like standing in ground and like, it's just like way over, like the, you know, the surface is like way over their head. Um, so they get pretty deep and wow. that does depend on like the water table. So in South Florida, they might not be like getting as deep, you know, as maybe potentially the ones in North Florida or like on, on the Lake Wales Ridge and things like that. But um, yeah, they do, they do get really deep. Not only that, are you taking temperatures of these? Like how, uh, what would the temperature be 40 feet underground or whatever? Yeah, so it, it varies. I haven't been taking temperature, um, but it does vary depending on location, but it doesn't really change more than like, I think they, I feel like it was like 0.2 degrees Celsius or something. Um, so like in the region that they're in, it's like extremely stable. Um, so it doesn't, it really doesn't fluctuate very much. So in the winter and the summer, like they're the same temperature pretty, I mean, that's not necessarily true, but it, do, it, it changes, but like, it really doesn't change like very much within a couple of days or a day or whatever, or even season to season. So yeah, it's really stable. Will a, will a tortoise dig another burrow? Like what would be a reason or do they usually stick to one or they dig multiple? They generally do have um, several. So they have usually at least two burrows that they go back and forth. Um, 
And so it's, I don't know, I like to think of it as like a summer home and a winter home, but it's probably has to do with rain (laughs) and like weather. Um, So I do think, um, you know, I'm not really sure. We're not really sure why they have multiple ones, um, but they do seem to like, you know, dig a couple, but they're always in that area in their lifetime. So they're not really like at, you know, at one site, they're not really like moving to another site or like, you know, they, they stay in one area their entire life. So they're, they know the other tortoises around them very well. And you mentioned, you mentioned relocating before. So are they like, you know, something like a box turtle that if you take them out of their home range, they get confused and are essentially looking for their home range the whole time, or do they relocate decently? No, it's so just like a box turtle. It's, um, you know, relocation's really um, challenging, and we're—I think we're still—we've gotten pretty far about like how we're trying to work on that. Um, but yeah, if you just pick them up and put them in another location, they're gonna look for home. They're gonna get really confused and like try to look for their home range. Um, and then you know, in the end, like they're probably crossing streets to get back home, and um, and a lot of times that just means you know a death sentence for them. Is there anything that happens to avoid, you know, like yeah. new construction going over, you know, go for tortoise habitat? Um, to avoid new construction or to, right. um, yeah. So now it's become um, a lot harder for people. Like previously people could actually build on top of burrows so they could literally just close them in. And then um, um, tortoises can, can live underground for a long time with very little oxygen um, and food. And so it could take them, you know, potentially it could take them months to die just, you know, and just getting built on, but that's not legal anymore. And so now you do have to have a permit, um, if you want to get them relocated. So if a builder is going to come in, um, they do have to like, um, apply for permits and, and, and it's expensive. Um, so yeah, it's like, we've come a long way since then. And it, it still seems like they get the short end of the stick, though. It does. It really does. It, um, especially in South Florida, I feel like it's hard to see a lot of that really beautiful syrup habitat um, being paved over. And it seems like a lot of those horses are being moved up to North Florida. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of hard to see that happening in Florida. What do you guys do to aid in the relocation, you know, to reduce the confusion and, like, trying to get back home? So now um, they will do like what's called a soft release. And so they have, um, they set up these pens out in this location where they want them to live. Um, And so, and there's a lot more that goes into it. I'm just giving like a brief, like what I know. I don't really know the details. Like I know that, um, you know, they have to be careful about like how many tortoises there are per acre. And um, I think they recommend like one tortoise per acre, maybe one tortoise every two acres. I could be wrong on that, but I, it's something like they need a lot of space. Um, so, um, now they do a soft release and so they'll build a pen and they, um, kind of dig a starter burrow for the tortoise and, um, kind of hope that the tortoise will use that starter burrow. Um, and, um, they have to leave them in this pen for like, I think two years before that they, before they can pull the pen up, um, and hope that it stays. So it's basically just, it takes them quite a bit of time for them to just be able to call a, a space home and get used to it. Yeah. Two years. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think like they've done studies where like they started at six months and then they went up to like a year and then two years and then three years. And I think that they said that like two years was a good amount of time. Um, but anything less than that, like they weren't really well adapted. It wasn't home yet for them. So they tried to leave. And I mean, are they like feeding them or are they growing certain vegetation within their pen? I think it's, I think they're growing vegetation within the pen and, you know, they're fine eating just grasses and things like that. So I think they make sure, you know, wherever they set the pen up, I think that they make sure there's good vegetation. And you had mentioned before spotted skunks and I mean, are those predators to the gopher tortoise? Can they get in there? And um, They do use them and I could, um, you know, I don't know if they're eating eggs or hatchlings. It's possible. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of predators for, for the gopher tortoise. So like some other animals that use the burrows are raccoons. Um, snakes would eat the eggs or the hatchlings. Um, there's, yeah, there's a number of uh, coyotes. Off, they'll, um, they'll actually use the burrows. And so they um, will dig out there. Like they'll use the gopher tortoise as like a starter burrow and then they'll dig it out, um, make it larger for their den. Um, but they do dig up nests and, and they will eat hatchlings. Um, bobcats are another one. Um, so yeah, there's a number. They have a rough life to start and it really takes them, you know, once hatchlings are here, <laughs> um, in South Florida, it takes them about seven years to mature. And like Whoa. at that point, yeah, well, so in North Florida, like in the Northern part of the range, it can take them up to 20. And so that whole time, like up until 20 years, like they're vulnerable to predation and so like in south florida like they're maturing so much faster um you know and that's awesome but like you know either way they still have the same predators and so yeah they're really vulnerable that, uh, for a long time. yeah i think a lot of people don't realize how long all like most species of turtles and tortoises take to yeah. get to maturity and that's why you know to uh, combine it with the fact that there's generally pretty slow moving and easy yes. to catch um, exactly. and prone to crossing the road and whatnot like exactly. they're kind of screwed yeah. yeah how do you live you know if you're a bog turtle or something how do you live the 20 years to get to maturity okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that's a lot of dangerous stuff and then even as adults like then there's that chance of crossing a road yeah so obviously you're in a place where you said is kind of has heavy foot traffic in it so how does that affect, I mean, do they live decently, you know, with all yeah. the, the traffic going on? I think they do. Um, I, so it's a, the, this is just one of my field sites, but um, it's a greenway. And so this is a space where when they started building a residential neighborhood around it, they started instead of, um, this was at a time where they actually could have built over the gopher tortoises. So um, instead of doing that, they did create a greenway specifically for the tortoises. And so, um, they, this was like previously cow pastured and like strawberry, um, plantation. And so they completely, um, you know, redid the habitat and made it suitable for gopher tortoises. Um, so the only issue, um, with it is like the tortoises are pretty well adapted to people there. Um, and it's really interesting to see because a lot of my other field sites like they very rarely see people and so they're gone in an instant like they're really hard to catch because they're usually just like near a burrow and like they see you coming and they're just inside 
Um, but the ones at this site at the Greenway are just like fine with people. Um, they'll just be grazing while people are walking by. Um, but the one issue is that it's really difficult to do prescribed burning. And so that's really important for gopher tortoise habitat because it really um, opens up the canopy um, and allows the sun sunlight to come in and hit the forest floor and like allows um, their vegetation, their food sources to grow and allows for these like sunlit nesting areas. So they really rely on that um, fire. Um, so this is because it's like surrounded by homes, it's really hard to burn. And so it hasn't been burned. Um, it's been, I think, 12 years since it's been burned. And so now the tortoises are sort of just having to like move out of the middle of the site because it's like, there's so much growing within. And so they're having to move out to these open sites, which is the trail. And so that's where they're digging their burrows and they're kind of losing space that way. And so, um, they're, you know, most tortoises at most sites will have a couple burrows, but these tortoises are fighting over burrows. And so there's a lot of, um, musical chairs going on where, if a tortoise leaves, like another tortoise might come in and steal that burrow because it's a place to live. Um, so that's one issue that we see with that site. And they really want to be solitary or do they ever interact? Um, they do. So what's really interesting, this is like something that I love to tell people is there was one study that was done um, with gopher tortoises and they found that they're actually a lot more social than we had ever thought. So they do prefer to have their own burrow and their own space and like live alone. Um, but they will go visit other tortoises. So they'll, um, the especially the females, the females will, when they did radio tracking, um, they found that females would go visit the same females like every so often, like every day, maybe every couple days. Um, but it was the same ones. And so there might be a female that lives right next door that they potentially don't like, but for whatever reason, they're not visiting. Um, but they're just visiting the same one. So there's sort of like these like clicks, like I like to call it like high school, school, like girl clicks. Um, and the males are just visiting, mostly just visiting females. They don't really have any, they're not visiting other males. If they are, it's because they want to combat. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting to see like the females do have this like social structure. Yeah, so. that's crazy. Cause in snakes, our males are always the roamers and the females just kind of chill out. But the yeah. fact that they are <laughs> hanging out with each other. And it's something that has happened two weeks in a row on the podcast because rattlesnakes apparently bond, meaning like they'll find the same pair hanging hey. out with each other. That's so amazing. Yeah, I love like just learning about social behavior and reptiles because I think we're just now learning so much about them. So. We don't give them Girls any are clicky across a lot of different species. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting because you don't think that that would help them in any way. Right, it's yeah. What is the benefit? Yeah. Everybody needs a friend. <laughs> and the males aren't worth anything but mating season. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so male, male combat, what is that like? Yeah. Um, that's another thing that I get to see really often at this um, urban site because they just don't seem to care there they'll fight in front of people um so males are fighting over females they're fighting over territory um and so they fight with um what's called a guler scoot or a guler horn and so like on their belly on the like bottom of their shell they have a projection from their shell that comes out like under their chin 
And so they're, that's what they're fighting with. It's really interesting to see because they are just like trying to flip each other over. So <laughs> a lot of the videos that you often see um, passed around on social media where tortoises are like upside down and another tortoise comes to rescue it, it's usually because they're, they're combating. Um, and so they're like, we see that too, where, um, they'll be combating and one male will flip another one over and then he'll flip him back over. I'm not really sure why, um, but he'll, they'll flip him back over, I think, just so that they can keep fighting. Um, so it's really interesting to see the combating. I've caught that on, on camera traps a lot too. Um, and then pretty soon after you'll see a female come by and, <laughs> and that's how mating happens. So. so is that like, is what do you call it, the guler, what's the right word for the it? The guler or guler horn. Yeah. Uh, is it bigger on the males for that purpose? Yeah. Yeah. So on the males, it is longer. The females do use it. I've had females actually use it on me. I have some pretty grumpy females that will um, defend their burrows or their territory. Um, but the males are, you know, it's huge on the males. It's, it tends to be longer. So my thought would be that typically what a turtle or tortoise would do would just hide in its shell, but you have animals that are actually interactive enough to try to combat you physically. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we have this um, one female tortoise. We call her Grumpy Gertrude. She's like the grumpiest lady. Um, every time she sees us, so she, her burrow initially used to be at the entrance of our field site. And so when we come in, it's like a fenced in site. Um, she would see us and like, she would immediately like come out of her burrow and just like pop up her head and be like, what are you doing here? If you got closer, she'd be coming out towards you and just like bobbing. So one defense, um, that they have is bobbing their heads. So like, that's how they communicate. And, um, that's, yeah, she would come out to just bob her head and be like, get off my property. <laughs> um, so if you, anytime I'm working at her burrow and I'm like trying to look for insects, she's attacked me. <laughs> Um, she's like physically like tried to push me away. Um, and then there's like other days where she's just completely chill and she's just like watching me do it. And so I'm not really sure what spurs that. I'm not really sure like why sometimes she's okay. And then the next day she's just like, go, I've had enough. Um, yeah, I don't know. She's also really curious. Like she'll come out and she'll bob her head and then she'll like check out all my equipment. And so she's just at the same time, she's like, kind of like get away but also i'm really curious about what you're doing so um that's, we have a lot of tortoises that are curious so yeah that's crazy because yeah. i mean how long have people been researching these particular burrows and like was there a point where they're kind of like socialized at this point is this why they're so you know yeah, so i think so i think at this so my um my advisor has been working at this field site since it started so like actually since they created the green way for the tortoises to be re relocated there he started and that was like 20 years ago so he's been working with them for a long time and so now i think like he's on a first name basis with them and he can like look at their number and just know who it is and um there's over 100 tortoises at the site and i feel like they're just all used to people and I think, I think a lot of it is because he's there all the time working with them. So is that number, I mean, much higher than usual as far as, um, cause it's been protected or you guys have been working there. Do you mean, um, then like, Oh, like, like the a, number a hundred individuals sounds like a lot for an animal that is a hundred. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's a lot of animals for the amount of acres it is. I think it was like nine. I don't remember. Oh, 22 acres or something. I could be completely wrong on this. I think I am wrong. But um, if, they, if they originally wanted one to two acres just for one animal, a hundred sounds like a lot. Yeah, it's a ton. It's a lot. And the crazy thing is, is that they are producing. We see juveniles um, quite frequently that we have never seen before. And considering we're out there all the time, we know the population pretty well. And so like now it's like, okay, here's a new one that we haven't seen. Um, so they are producing um, and there are tunnels that connect them to others. So the greenway is actually really long, but we only work in a small section of it with one population of tortoises, but it keeps going and there's other um, parts of the greenway. Um, and so right now we work in this one section and there's like um, a tunnel that connects them to another greenway so that they can just pass underneath the road. Um, they don't tend to use it very much, but I assume that some might be, and maybe they're, you know, going back and forth that way and meeting other tortoises. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's a ton, it's a lot of tortoises and that's like another issue. Um, it's not normal and you wouldn't generally see that in nature. Um, yeah, that's, that has to do with relocation. So. so does that does that hinder you in any way as far as the the amount and then also like the um, how outgoing they are? I mean, does that yeah. do you think that affects behavior? It like, definitely. Oh. I'm so sure it affects behavior because I've had, um, like I said, I've had six field sites, and this is the only site where I've seen some of these types of behaviors. And um, even when I have the camera set up, like this is pretty unusual. There's a lot of combating, a lot of fighting, um, but also there's a lot of females hanging out together. Um, there's a lot of like weird love triangles. <laughs> so you'll see, um, like on the camera traps, I've just caught so many different things like where, um, you know, males will be courting. This is normal. Males will court females for days. If not, sometimes it seems like a month. It goes on for a long time and maybe it's just continual. Maybe they have been mating in, in South Florida. They can mate year round cause it's so warm. Um, but I've just, I, it's interesting to see like, how many males like there'll be like three males that are after this female and there have been times where um we've pulled out multiple males i think we had in one borough we had five tortoises um there's two females and three males in one borough and so that was really interesting and i don't i've never seen that before like with the other field sites that i've worked at i've never seen that kind of behavior so i think it's i think it can be normal i it's like interesting because I, I know someone else has been working with behavior stuff and mating um, and I do th think that they've also observed some of this, but it just doesn't seem quite as common. So I don't know. There's just a lot of competition at this site. And do males typically just go with one female or will they mate with multiple females? They mate with multiple. They will mate with multiple. Um, we don't know very much about um, the hierarchy or like you know who's really mating with who um but the females do tend to maybe mate with several males every year um but this tend it tends to be like the same the same males um and so there's like males that um are sort of like the um, main dominant males in, at the site and there might be one or two of them but they'll be the dominant males and so those tend to be the males that get a lot of the females Sounds like similar to similar. Sounds like animals. Outgoing one and dominant one, lots of times gets 
I don't know about that, but <laughs> it definitely happens. Sure. So, <laughs> I guess, but uh, have you been able to see, you know, females laying eggs or? Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I've definitely observed um, females nesting. I try to not get too close. And if I see it, I don't really stick around. Um, but yeah, I've seen them nesting. My undergrad research was actually on um, reproductive success. So I was counting nests. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, but I found, you know, I was counting nests and then um, hatching them and making sure that they actually survived. <laughs> Oh, so you, are you, you're actually collecting or collecting or the eggs? Is it an undergrad? Can you, is, the wind, is the wind affecting? No. You can you hear wind? Okay. Okay. That's not true, I'm saying. <laughs> but, but even the work you're doing now, are you collecting eggs and incubating them? Oh, no. No, I actually didn't. I never did that. I was just... Um, they lay their nests like right on like right in front of the burrow on the ape. It's called the apron. It's like this mound of dirt from when they dig out the burrow. And so that's where they nest. And so I was really just, um, I have to go in with a um, survey flagstick. It's like a thin piece of metal and like gently, very gently, like um, just search for these nests. And um, basically if you hear like a tiny little click, um, almost like a rock or something, then that's a nest. And so then I can dig it up, figure out how many there are um, and then put a nest protector on it. And so... That's the only way to see them. It's not like sea turtles where you're like, oh, there's tracks. Like, it doesn't really work that way. Um, so I have to, you know, go in and actively search for them and dig them up and figure out where they are. Um, and then I just put a nest protector on it because there's a lot of things that get to them, especially raccoons. So, What is the typical clutch style? As we say clutch, we say clutch for snakes. I don't know if it's the same across the board, but yeah. Yeah, what's the typical clutch size? So a typical clutch size is probably generally around like five eggs. It can range from like four to nine. It can get bigger. It can be up to 12. I've never seen more than nine eggs. Um, generally yeah, no, it's not, not at all. So yeah, the average is five. And uh, what is a nest protector made of? <laughs> so it says mesh um, basket. So basically just take like mesh wire and they create just a basket that's like this tall and like set it right over the nest and then put fence stakes in it. And it's not like that effective. <laughs> it does work. It has worked. But I think that in some locations where people are using the nest protectors, um, raccoons have actually learned that that means that there's a nest and that's something that they can actually dig up. So it's not really very good at protecting. And um, why do they do it at the front of the, that seems like the least, right. that's the place you would last want to put your eggs. Yeah, I agree. So it's not always there. Sometimes it's like, they'll find just like a sandy patch of sand, but it's so hard for them to find it, especially if it's not like scrubby habitats is great because scrub, it's like all sand um, and very little vegetation. And so there's a lot of sandy patches in scrub, but if you're out in the flatwoods habitat, which is like more um, like either longleaf pine or um, uh, slash pine, things like that. And there's a lot of um, ground cover also. And so it's not quite as sandy and it's like harder to find those open sandy patches and that's what they need. So that's generally where they get it is like the apron. And so. how long do they typically take to hatch? Oh, I think it takes like two months for them to hatch. 
I remember correctly. I remember just doing it like in one summer season. So it was like done by fall. So I guess the mothers are not trying to get in there once they've laid their eggs. I guess, you know, once you have the nest protector, I was thinking, oh, would the moms get mad or like want to be able to protect their eggs? Right. But I guess they don't care once they've already laid. It's yeah, there's really generally we say that there isn't really any nest protection, but we have observed some females that have like exhibited nest protection. And so they have been really defensive. Um, There's I mean, I can only say that it was um, that I saw it with one tortoise at UNF when I worked in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, There was one female tortoise that was like very protective of her nest and to the point where she was biting and she wasn't a bitey female without her nest. Um, before that she wasn't bitey, she wasn't defensive. She was pretty shy, but when she had her nest, she was really protective. Um, so anytime we came by, she was biting. Seems like there's a wide range of personalities and behaviors. For sure. Yeah. If there's anything I've learned working with them is that they do definitely have a wide range of personality. And we're something that we are not supposed to prescribe, uh, you know, human feelings on or personality on, I guess. Yeah, I just, it's like, I don't know, there's times where I understand that, like, I kind of agree, but I also feel like there's a point too where it's kind of like almost dangerous to not because I do feel like they, you know, they definitely do have personality and, you know, anyone who works closely with animal and I know that you do, um, you know, we do, like, there's definitely some personality there, so. There's a lot of variance between individuals of the same species. Yes. Whether in the wild or whether in captivity. Exactly. And I think it's important to acknowledge that to some extent, because like you were talking about earlier, it's like you've only noticed some of these social behaviors in that one site that has a hundred. So it, it kind of, you know, leads you to these more questions like, oh, right. it, could it be this? And so I think if you completely negated their personalities and their behaviors, then it wouldn't lead you to these other questions. Absolutely. Who knows? Maybe you'll... Yeah. So, well, and it seems well, like they it. are changing yeah. their behavior based on what must work in their small community. Like for sure, yeah, yeah. Like they have to be defensive and and you know in the green way because they have to fight for a burrow or right. food or you know mates and so yeah. Yeah, it's just a more competitive uh, environment, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, but again, like not all of them are. Some of them are just like okay. I guess I'm just going to sleep outside tonight. (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting. I thought they would lay their eggs inside. You would think that they'd leave it right at the end, but I guess. So they need sun. They have to have like that sunny spot. Um, And so another thing too is, you know, the temperature, um, their temperature sex dependent. So yeah. I don't know. They do need the sun. It has to be outside. So have you actually, I don't know if you can tell sex from babies, but I'm I'm assuming you have seen babies coming out of the nest, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I have. It's like such a cool experience. And can you, can you sex them right off the bat, right out, right out of the egg, basically? I, I didn't. Um, I'm sure that there are ways you can't tell just by looking at them. Um, So I think you probably have to use a probe or something, but that wasn't something that I did. So, and I don't, I mean, even, even now when we see juveniles at our field site, um, sometimes the males will show us if it's a male. 
Um, sometimes they'll flash us. And so that's how we can tell if they're too young to actually sex, but otherwise we really don't try. So. And are you seeing as far as the population goes generally, um, it's stable in the areas that you're working at? Yeah. Yeah. It's been really stable. Um, and that's the only area that we've actually been, um, really truly looking at population estimates, um, and following it. And so, but yeah, it's been, it's been stable for the Greenway. And what is so, the, the typical range for the gopher tortoise in general? Of age? No, no range uh, as far as their, their habitat and everything. Uh, how much like space? I, you know, that's a really good question. Well, not, not like individual, but as far as, um, cause obviously they're throughout Florida and they go up into Georgia as well, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so yes, they go into Georgia and Alabama. Um, they're in a really small part in South Carolina. Um, and just very small location in Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, so the largest, um, largest like population is Florida. We have the most COVID horses in Florida. Um, but yeah. And do you think that's just because the weather allows them to reproduce more often? You know, I'm not sure. I don't know that that's the answer. Um, I I don't think so. I think I think we're just a really big state, and so that's probably some of it. And you know, in South Carolina, um, they're only a small portion because it's really cold, and so um, they don't they don't go into like northern South Carolina or anything. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's just cause Florida is a big state and we have, you know, some habitat that's protected now and they're working towards keeping it off the endangered species list. So. And I, I hear it all the time said as far as the gopher tortoise goes that it's a keystone species. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, keystone species is, uh, I feel like I'm so bad at like describing this, but I like to say, um, you know, it gets its name from, if you think of the keystone in a doorway, that's like holding all of the bricks together. And so if you remove that keystone, everything crumbles, that like doorway will crumble. So um, basically it's an animal that if you remove it from the ecosystem, um, the ecosystem is going to be drastically different. And so it really depends on, it doesn't, necessarily depend on like the amount of um, gopher tortoises in the ecosystem either. Like it can be a pretty small um, uh, population of whatever keystone species it is and it has an impact on the ecosystem. Um, I tend to like be on, you know, the side of, I think that um, we tend to use keystone pretty freely with a lot of animals. And I think that everything has some significance in the ecosystem. And so yeah, I think gopher tortoises are keystone species and, and they are called keystone, but I also feel that everything has some significance and protecting a keystone can protect a lot of other species. That is the benefit. There. Of having that like title of keystone that kind right. of you know, brings awareness. But I agree. It's like, what are the boundaries of a keystone? Right, everything exactly. Everything's important. Right, well, everything does something. <laughs> yeah, um, everything, if it's here, it deserves something. Yeah. Right. So then what? Even your know? ship beetles. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we don't know, it's just because we haven't figured it out yet. So. Right. And it seems like obviously they 
they are in a similar situation as far as like the indigo stuff that we've talked about before and especially with like the prescribed burns and stuff like that so yeah i mean in this modern day and age with (laughs) with you know so much new construction and stuff going on and obviously you can't burn it i mean what are what are you supposed to do yeah there are some other options that aren't really as effective, but um, what they do now is they mow it. <laughs> um, so it's basically taking um, just like this, I, I, like, pardon me, because I don't know the equipment, like, I don't really know what they're called, but it's um it's a mower, but it like goes in and like mows the habitat, um, the vegetation. Um so it kind of clears out like a lot of the understory that's like growing within. And so it like frees up some space for the gopher producers to be able to like move back into the territory, back into the site. Um, whereas like right now, as I mentioned before, they're just like getting pushed out to the trails. So all of this like space in between is like kind of wasted. Um, so they can go in and like mow that area and like open it back up so that they can go back in and dig burrows and like have sunlight hitting the floor. Um so that's an option, but it's not really very effective. It's, you know, fire is definitely the most ideal. So, and yeah. <laughs> so that kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's something, it's definitely something, but, um, but we're working on it. They did get a prescription to burn a couple of years ago and um, everybody was really excited about it, but the prescription um, ended up, um, expiring because you have to get it done within a year and then you, they have to reevaluate it a year later so it expired because they could never really get the weather just right and so the weather conditions have to be perfect especially when you're working near homes and so you know it's like it would have to be a perfect day when everybody's available and free to do a burn and so that was really hard to um, figure out and so the prescription ended up expiring but they're working on a new one i'm not sure if they're going to actually um prescribe though i'm not sure if it's gonna work out to get that approval what's that who do you go through to get that approval to do it what do we go through yeah like what i'm honestly not sure i wasn't part of um like that whole process and i it's it's interesting to hear my advisor talk about it because it is something that i know he's been working on for like years and you know trying to go back and forth between you know, I think like county and state, and I'm not really sure who's involved in everything, um, but it is county property. And so, um, you know, and a lot of it's just um, trying to get the locals on board because, you know, these are, this is their home. And a lot of people don't understand, a lot of people are very against prescribed burns because they really don't understand the point. And it seems, you know, and I understand it like does seem to be, um, destructive and you're gonna light my backyard yeah exactly (laughs) people in florida talk northern florida maybe yeah we (laughs) have some um but i it's something that i understand and so it's something that we do have to like work with educating the public um to get them on board because they are you know they are a part of it so yeah ultimately i guess it has to be they need to be on board in order for you guys to go but uh Brian Holt said that burn permits are usually through the State Forestry Commission. Okay. Okay. So there you go. Hit them up if you want to burn some stuff. <laughs> um, okay, I want to switch gears. Did yeah. you have a question on that? No. 
Um, so switching gears, so how long is your graduate study program? Like this seems like something you could do like forever. Your advisor's been doing it. Does it really good. That's basically what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so technically, um, it should be, it's like a two-year program. A lot of people do take three years, and I'm on that three-year out. Um, so yeah, generally a two-year program for a master's thesis. How far into it are you? I'm finishing up. I'm like really hoping to be done this summer. Um, so now I'm like kind of on the job hunt and like looking um, looking out for jobs and starting applications. But right now I'm really just uh, writing my thesis and um, working on insect IDs. And I have like, I think the majority of insects that I could ID myself. Now it's just a matter of trying to find um, like somebody that's good with mites and things like that. It's really hard to identify mites, but. Um, I didn't even know that they just look like little black dots. <laughs> they are. It's so frustrating. I mean, like once you get them under my microscope, I'm like, okay, these are definitely different. They look so different. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it's almost, it's frustrating trying to be like an expert in all of these different. You know, right. I mean, that's yeah. a whole separate different thing. I feel like that right. you could have a pieces just on identifying, you know, not just finding them and <laughs> how they affect the gophers and everything, but just identifying all of them is a whole separate thing. It is. Yeah, it is. Thank you for acknowledging that. I feel like it's so hard <laughs> to explain this to like my family. That's like, when are you going to finish? And I'm like, I don't know. Stop asking that question. <laughs> I just say, look at these bugs. Do you see a difference between them? Because <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> are you also finding these mites on the gophers as well? Are there parasites that they're... Yeah. So yeah, there's um there's actually a tick called the gopher tortoise tick, um and it's I think it's a tick I don't know very much about it but I have found them just in the burrows without actually being on the tortoise um they've kind of like are in the soil, um and it's not something that's really an issue for them like it's okay if they have a couple ticks um but yeah they tend to be found in um, gopher tortoise burrows or sort of like in that habitat too so they're not so much um, like in what would what I would call an obligate commensal, which is an animal that's like found only inside of the burrow. Um, but they do tend to be found on gopher tortoises. So, um, but otherwise, um, like, a, have you, do you have any interest in studying those at all, or anything that feeds off of the, the gopher tortoises? Really, I would. Yeah, I would if I was given the opportunity. I don't know very much about them, so I'd have to like do a little bit more research on them. But yeah, I think that'd be fun. Yeah, what made you go that route instead of just like doing the regular just I didn't I wasn't planning on insects at all. Like that was like I came into this for the herps and I really wanted to get, you know, get back with gopher tortoises because I had taken a long break from my undergrad to my masters and um I was just like I really want to get back and working with gopher tortoises and my advisor just presented this project to me so I, um didn't really have a project in mind. Like I was like, what about commensals? And he was like, yeah, you should study the insects because nobody's doing them. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm not interested. And in, like, I've, I like bugs, but like I was not interested in like becoming an entomologist. Um, and I'm really happy that he did present it. Like once I started reading about it, I was just like, this is fascinating and we don't know anything about it. And I think that's what really like spurred my interest was the fact that like, People are like, we need people to study this. And I was like, okay, sign me up. So yeah, it was it, like, I don't really know how it just kind of fell into my lap. I feel like I got lucky in that sense. Like I got to combine herpetology and entomology and just see how everything's so connected. 
Um, Sounds like your job got a lot harder. (laughs) What's that? Sounds like your job got a lot harder, but yeah. I don't think I was expecting it like I was like I was like no big deal I'll get people to help me identify bugs and then like trying to find people for like each of these different things has been a challenge but but when people when when I do find somebody they totally geek out about it and like that's why I love entomologists because they're just pumped like everybody is so pumped about like their species and so it's exciting to like you know just meet new people it's like definitely open the door to like meeting new people and and so everyone you get to help you, they have to be like near you, right? To be able to come in and actually look at the insects. Um, so. Yeah. Like for some of them, I've actually just been able to send like a microscope picture and like, mm-hmm. and those are the easy ones. Um, and other times, like I have to go to them. Um, and luckily, like so far it's been in Florida. Um, and so I've had to like, tra- you know, bring these insects to them and like ID them with them. Um yeah, so far that's been it. I might have to, you know, ship off insects somewhere if I can find somebody. So we'll see. You know, put like a Craigslist ad. Can I send you bugs, please? <laughs> when we get E.O. Wilson on the show, we'll put in a good word. Right? Okay. Uh, yes. E.O. Wilson. <laughs> Yeah, we have a connect. We have a yeah, first level connect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll figure it out. Don't tell everyone that. Okay. No, I want to know who. The secrets. Um, I don't remember his name, so that's embarrassing. <laughs> so we want to go there for that simple <laughs> fact. Mark Matt. He used to be. Mark Matt. Didn't he have like a on TV? Yeah, he, he had some type of TV show. Ooh, that'll be fun. Uh, he studied under E.O. Wilson at Harvard, so. Nice. Okay, so that's, that's a really fun. good connection. Yeah. So hopefully. <laughs> We need a message credit after this. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it out loud. See what happens. Yeah. Uh, so is that is that something that you're interested in going? You said you're applying to jobs now. The mm-hmm. bug thing is that something you're interested in, in the future? Yeah, I feel like now because I started this, I don't know, just new like road of like biology. Um, I feel like I'm just. It just reminded me that I should just keep my options open, and I feel like this is an area that I never thought I'd end up. And so now I'm just like, who knows what's going to happen next? Like, I'm just going to keep an open mind because I fell in love with my project. And so I feel like there's just like so many other options now because I'm like, I know I could really like a lot of anything, <laughs> any wildlife, if I get the opportunity to work with them. So yeah, is I don't know. There, I feel like... You were probably going to ask a very similar question. Go ahead. No. Is there an animal that would be like, your bucket list type of animal to research oh my gosh bucket list um it's so weird because i feel like i get this question all the time or like what's your favorite animal and i'm like i don't know um i i don't know if i have a bucket list i actually think that if i were i'd want to move to something big like bears i would i would love to work with bears or or the florida panther um yeah, ultimately, like, I think eventually I'd really like to um, get into, like, sort of big big picture conservation, especially in Florida, and, like, just be part of, you know, something that's, like, working towards, you know, connecting wild Florida, and, like, um, yeah, just that's what I would ultimately love to, like, end up doing is just more, something more broad. So you're really open to everything. Anything. 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And do you think that as far as conservation goes, I mean, there's not much going on in the, the reptile front in a sense as far as the, you know, the charismatic fauna always comes before the, you know, the reptiles and stuff like that. So how can we get people interested in, say, the gopher tortoise? I mean, it seems like you're doing it, you know, but. I hope I am. I, I think um, that's something I've kind of struggled with just trying to figure out and just experimenting with. Um, and I think you're doing it, um, you know, and you're doing a great job at it online. And so I, I think it's like just a lot of, um, I'm not, you know, there's like this part of me that's like, I'm not really sure if I'm just seeking out the people that are equally interested in something weird. And like, you know, you kind of create your own space and then these people follow. Um, or if I'm actually getting people truly excited about something that they didn't really care about before. And so I think that's where I'm sort of trying to figure out, you know, what kind of impact have I made or if I, you know, I'm not really sure. And so I found it really difficult to get people excited about shit bugs, <laughs> um, about, you know, just go for tortoise insects. And so it's really easy to, it's a lot easier to be able to like hook them with a, you know, with the gopher tortoise. And so it's like great that I have that connection there and I can, I can use the gopher tortoise as, um, as like, you know, a way the to get people excited one. about. Yeah, exactly. So they are definitely more charismatic than insects. Um, but I don't know. I feel like as far as gopher tortoises, I, I just, I don't know. I think sharing interesting facts, I think people really love learning about, you know, their social behavior and, um, you know, and just sharing about their local wildlife. I think a lot of people are just like, oh, I see gopher tortoises all the time, but I had no idea, like, you know, that they shared, you know, so many, um, shared space with so many other animals. And, and so, I, yeah, I think it's really just like teaching them about like local wildlife and, you know, what's, what's around them and just getting them interested that way. Um, so speaking of getting the word out, let's yeah. talk about like your Instagram and everything in that and how that all got started. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> I started, I've always been really interested in like education. I, especially, so when I started grad school, I think that's when it really like piqued my interest where I was like, oh, I really love, um, I started doing, I started being a teaching assistant. It was just like general teaching labs in grad school. I love it. I don't know why. I just feel like I really like, I loved teaching life science, which is like a science that like most, um, people have to take that aren't science that aren't going into biology or any sort of sciences. And so they're non-science students. And that to me was so much fun was like teaching non-science students about science because it was just fun to get them pumped about something that they weren't initially interested in. And so I think that's where I realized sort of my passion for like education. And then, um, then I kind of took it to Instagram and Twitter and I haven't really been on Twitter as much. Um, I sort of took Instagram as my baby. Um, yeah, I just started sharing like my, my work and my field work. And, um, I don't know, I just really like, I just really felt like, fell in love with like educating and so that's sort of the route that I want to go I think now I'm like things are going to change I'm going to graduate and I don't know if I'm going to be working with gopher tortoises anymore or, like what I'm going to be doing and so we'll see what happens <laughs> I don't know so 
millennial question here. Were you big into Instagram before? No. This? Okay. No, I had it. I was like private up until it was like a private Instagram up until two years ago. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just used it like personal for personal stuff. And then um, once I started like grad school and started realizing that I really wanted to like share my experiences, cause I was like, I love natural history and I love wildlife. And I'm like, what's the point if you can't really share it? And so that was like my chance to be like, I'm, mean, this is what I've learned. Let me share it with you. So and did you expect to have over 10,000 followers? <laughs> no, and I actually feel like it's been really hard to like grow following. Um, but a lot of it's been, you know, I like sometimes I'm not really sure how I'm not, I'm not even sure how it did, but I think like I got a lot of my followers from the Ologies podcast. And um, so a lot of it has just been like shout outs and, um, you know, help from other people. And so, yeah, I don't really know like how. <laughs> how it happened but I really enjoyed doing it and so yeah I know even like herpers that they're so nervous about sharing locations about where animals are so what kind of cautions do you take on that front yeah so I don't post my field site locations um because I like I love doing stories like when I was out in the field all the time I was like trying to share my stories um, of like my entire field day as a story, um, and just bring people out there with me. Um, but I had to be careful about, you know, location and field sites. Um, so I don't share that. That's something that I don't share. Um, but people know I'm in South Florida and of course, sources are found throughout South Florida, throughout Florida. Um, so yeah, I'm just careful about like sharing location. And I guess you mentioned this before, but it's kind of hard especially for us, I feel like we do it a lot. We're like preaching to the choir as far as, uh, you know, we're talking to reptile people about reptiles. So, but I mean, we may be introducing them to gopher tortoises right now when they used to be into just keeping a ball python or something like that. But how do you get, how do you find new people, you know, and how do you think has been successful as far as finding, you know, new people to educate? That's a really good question. Um, like as far as like new people on Instagram? Yeah, I mean, that's in, general. in general. Yeah, because I mean, I'm sure you have brushes with like the general public who are using those trails that you're researching on and stuff like that even. Yeah, so I, so whenever I'm giving a talk, I make sure I always have my um, social media accounts. That's like another way that I've grown following. So um, especially when I'm giving a talk to like the general public, um, so I recently had one at MacArthur Beach State Park and, um, I gained a lot of followers that way. And so that was really cool. Cause it was like non-scientists and that's like my favorite group of people to talk to. I love talking to non-scientists. Um, and so, and yeah, if I could just talk, if I could give talks like all day about my research to like the general public and like just avoid conferences, that would be perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, But yeah, so that's one way that I've gained following on Instagram. And then I love, I don't know, I, every time I'm out in the field, especially when I'm at the, at my um, urban site at the Greenway, um, I always run into people and people are always asking questions. And so I let them hang out. Um, I've even, you know, people have even like offered to pay me to take them back out in the field um, and just do like a tour. Yeah. So it's been really interesting. Like I had, I did have someone that met me out in the field 
and she wanted to bring her friends back out. And so I was like, yeah, sure. Like, let me know. And she brought a group of people with her and like, they all came out. And so I've done that several times. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of my favorite ways to educate is like actually getting the chance to like, let people see what I'm doing or like, let them meet a gopher tortoise. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I think that's like my favorite thing is like bringing people out and, you know, there's like no way of connecting. Like there's like, it's just, I don't know. I really think the best way of connecting people is like actually letting them see, see, you know, what, what I'm trying to introduce to them. So. Yeah. Nothing, nothing can replace the real world. Exactly. Well, just the feeling of it, you know, we can hear about it. We can see pictures of it, but we're not experiencing it until And like enjoy yeah. our own personal experience with it that we can take, you know, and share with other people. Then I think that helps spreads. Like, yes, we can say like, oh, go for tortoises need our help. But until you go there and you see like, oh, whoa, this is how it's really happening. Then that's when you have that true emotional connection to it. And I think that's when you're going to tell your friends more about it. For sure. I agree. I think, yeah, experience is key. And then, yeah, that's another way that you're going to want to share it for sure. So, so yeah, I agree. the talks that you're doing, is it like through a school setting um, you up or are you like reaching out to these people randomly emailing you? How's that work? I've actually, like most of the time it's people like just looking for talks, or, like looking for a presenter. And so um, that's, I've been invited um, usually. And yeah, that's like my favorite part. I love getting invited to these things. Um, yeah. Are you able to have an animal with you sometimes? I did. I did for um, once for a a kids um, science camp. So I was able to like go out and grab some tortoises and like bring them back in. And um, so, yeah, I did for that. That was really fun. But not for the actual talks. Like I wish I could have. It would have been really cool to like just go out, grab a tortoise and like bring them back. But yeah, I'm do, sure that's kind of frowned upon. Do schools, but... Yeah, yeah, well, for sure. Well, do, do schools, do universities have their own animals? Is that a thing? It's <laughs> a silly question. Yeah, yeah. So it's like we there are like definitely places that I have contacts with where um, you can like work with the ambassador animals. And so that's been another way I've been able to introduce students to. And then like in a, in a situation where I was like going out to grab a tortoise, it was like in the same site. Like it was like um, an education center, like at my site. So it wasn't like I was, um, you know, like transporting it or anything. <laughs> so. And are people generally, I mean, into it as far as the, the gopher tortoise? I mean, it's probably an easier sell than a snake, but. Yeah, I do think it's I do think it's an easier sell than a snake. Um, yeah, I think people end up loving tortoises. Like, I actually think that it's a pretty easy animal to like introduce people to. People love them. I mean, I I get that they are, um, you know, something that's like not you know charismatic, but um, but I do feel like it's pretty easy to like get people excited about them. Yeah, there's never like evil turtles in any movies. Oh, uh, she's been attacked. Gertrude. Gertrude. <laughs> she was in, she ended up, um, Bethany Aguilar is a science communicator and she ended up writing an article because um, uh, Grumpy Gertrude did attack her and she got a video of it, <laughs> like attacking her camera. And so um, she, ended, she ended up like, 
posting or publishing something in Nat Geo. So she is Nat Geo famous for her grumpiness. <laughs> Did you see that? Because um, of course, my research consists of mostly YouTube searching go for tortoise. Uh, the, the, the BBC with David Attenborough, where it looks like this just outrageous robot camera that he brings yeah. down a burrow. That seems mm -hmm. like the least efficient way to ever get a camera down a burrow. <laughs> but um, I'm so, guessing it's a it, lot different. Yeah, and apparently, um, so somebody I know had actually contacted uh, David Attenborough or the people that were working with him about this camera because this is like something that people have been working on forever, like trying to like build a camera, a RoboCam. It's something that I did for my undergrad, like working on this like RoboCam that would like go down burrows and like get video footage and like take temperature and um, humidity and things like that. And so, yeah, that was something that we were working on. And so somebody had contacted him about this um, camera that he was using and apparently it was complete BS. Apparently it only worked one time. And after that, it like never really worked again. Um, so that was interesting. <laughs> it would have been really ideal if it did, and if we could, you know, get cameras it like that. Seem that far fetched. I guess. I guess to do live video feed, it may be a little, a little weird. But yeah. um, he basically like he had this like computer thing that was just huge, and he's like toggling this little switch on it, and it just looked like something that a, a GoPro could have done if you put it on a stick. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have a really long stick. But it seemed also he was like chasing the tortoise with this little wow. car. <laughs> with this like little remote control car. Seems so effective. <laughs> oh okay, God. it's not real. Do you, um, so the video that you do get, you said it's like, I guess you have to explain deeper on, on how it works. On the camera? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like this really long hose. <laughs> it's a long scope with a tiny little um, bulb camera at the end. It's like this big. Um, and it has a light at the end. So like when you send it down, it like does like project a light. Um, and so my cord, I think, is 30 feet long. Um, and it attaches to... Um, I don't know anything about like the mechanics of this, but um, it attaches to like just this like little battery with like a screen um, and it works pretty well. It's really difficult to identify some species. Like if I'm looking at a frog, um, it's not like the quality of the, of the actual like screen isn't very good. Um, and like sometimes I'm able to actually see insects in there. So I can be like, oh, there's moths, but I can't identify, you know, what kind of moths they are just through that. Um, but it's effective. I mean, um, the thing about, about this, like sending a camera down a burrow, it's not super effective when it comes to, um, determining what animals are using the burrows. Um, because snakes or frogs or like all of these other animals, mice have separate burrows inside of the burrow. And so I've seen snakes go in where I've been like, ah, I saw a coach whip go in. I'm going to scope it and see if I can just get like cool video footage of it. And it was gone. Like I couldn't, the snake was gone. Like it was like definitely in there because I saw it go in, but it couldn't find it with the scope. So, so like digging little burrows on the side. One. Exactly. Yep. So there's a lot of other little burrows. And so like they might've been using, um, there's a, a mouse, the Florida mouse 
um, is a burrow that, or is a mouse that like only uses gopher tortoise burrows. And so, but they have like their own burrows inside of the burrow. And so a lot of other creatures are using those burrows or like digging their own. And so, um, yeah, it's like, they're gone. By the time you send the scope in, like I would never see a Florida mouse, like with a scope or, you know, they're scared. And so they're just taking off. Um, so the most effective thing for like determining commensals, like for determining vertebrates that are using the burrows is using the actual camera trap on the outside of the burrow. Cause then they're coming and going. And you see it all right yeah. there. Yeah. So wait, now I'm going to remember, didn't you say earlier that for something you were doing, you're sticking your hand in those burrows? Yeah. And you I'm see sticking like, my there. And you're well, still more sticking. Yeah, any of those, yeah. and you're still sticking your body. There are rattlesnakes, and I like the snakes. Like I'm always looking first, so I have a really good flashlight. And before I put any limbs or face or anything in there, I'm looking really well to see if anything's there. Um, and I've seen rattlesnakes before, and so I'm not just like throwing my limbs in, without, like knowing what's in there. Um, so I make sure like it's safe. Um, and the, like the one thing that I've actually been afraid of when I'm already in the burrow is, um, is, um, black widow spiders. So like, I've been in there where I'm like, okay, my head's inside and like, and then all of a sudden, like, I can just see like a black widow spider in its web. And so I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but I've never, I've never had an issue. I've never like, I've always been fine. <laughs> I'm so out. <laughs> I will never put any part of my body inside. A <laughs> I feel like I have to tell you that. Are there, so for a lot of our uh, specifically pine snakes and indigos and stuff like that, they feed a lot of, off of uh, pocket gophers. Are there pocket gophers also in South Florida and throughout Florida? Uh, that's a good question. They're definitely not at my field site. I don't, I've never seen them. And so I don't really think that they're in South Florida, but I could be wrong. I don't know. And it doesn't sound them. like you have uh, like Southern pines in there either. Um, we have uh, slash pines. Oh, Southern pine snakes. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, I've never seen them. We do have we do have pine snakes, but I've never seen I've never recorded them. Yeah, because I would think that. You know, because usually, especially in, you know, say the, the indigos or the Louisiana pines or a lot of the pituophis, they are they are using those gopher tortoise burrows, basically. But it seems like you don't see a lot of that. Just because of my house. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't, like, I don't know if it's just South Florida. Like, I mean, I work in really good habitat. I just, I don't know if I just haven't gotten lucky, but I haven't recorded any of those really awesome snakes. Um, yeah, no pine snakes, no indigos. So are you sharing this field site with master's students who are doing snake research studies? Um, I don't know anybody that is, but it's possible. Like I, not, not my field site, not the, not the Greenway. Um, but I'm also working at state parks and things like that. So it's possible that there are other students who are doing snake research I don't know of anyone at FAU at my university that's working with snakes. Um, but yeah, it's possible that other people are. I just don't know of any projects going on. Yeah, I, I would think that you would see a lot more snakes. I know, I thought it would be. Yeah. I, the, the, like, the main snakes that I see using burrows are coach whips and black racers. 
Um, but yeah, I haven't seen. Yeah, I really thought that I'd see like I thought that I'd see more Diamondbacks, and I have seen I have seen them, but I thought I'd see more. Um, I thought that I'd see pine snakes, maybe an indigo. Yeah. None of it. Weird part of Florida where you're not. It is, um, you know, South Florida and, um, yeah, it's very developed where I am. So where exactly is Florida Atlantic? It's in Boca. Oh, gotcha. So it's like, it's North of Miami, South of West Palm. But yeah. it's down there. Yeah. Where yeah. all the fun stuff is. Yeah. So <laughs> have you have you actually been able to see a gopher tortoise get basically uh oh, no. <laughs> have you seen them get eaten or have um, you lost an animal that you had some sort of attachment to? So I yes, that is I've never seen one get eaten. I have seen um some from my field site actually get run over, like when I've you know, pulled over to try and like move it across the road and I was too late. Um, so that's happened before, but, um, I have lost a hatchling. Like, so it's really, I've lost many hatchlings, like where I can find, um, at my field site, it's when you're out there working all the time, it's hard to find hatchling burrows, but when you do, it's like really exciting. Um, and so I'm always keeping an eye on it and like always checking on it and most of them don't make it. Um, and so it's just kind of expected. You don't get attached, but you still check and you record. And um, and you see these hatchlings sometimes out grazing. And so it's pretty exciting when you do find like a tiny little baby. Um, and then you're keeping an eye on it for weeks and weeks. And then all of a sudden it's gone. And you're like, okay. And you can tell it's been dug out by something. Um, and so there was one that I had been keeping an eye on. It was the, like just a yearling. It was like a, it was a really small one when I first saw it. And then um, I was keeping an eye on it for like a year. And I just, I was like, it's going to make it, you know, it's like, it's like getting big. I could see it like growing and we were measuring it every couple months. Um, and then like one day it was just like the burrow was gone, completely dug out. It looked like it had been dug out by a coyote. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a bummer because I was like pretty, I got attached to that one. It was one, um, I had kind of like had a rough start. We, um, so since these tortoises are sort of like pushed out to the trails, there's um, the trails get mowed every couple weeks with just a um, lawnmower. Um, and so they're hard to see those tiny little burrows. And so the um, the person who had been mowing the lawn um, ran over it, over the burrow. And so it had completely like smushed the burrow. And luckily the tortoise wasn't in it. It was outside, but he looked a little lost and it had like just happened. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to like dig out this burrow for it and just kind of redug it for him. And, um, and he used it and he used it again for like months and months. And then, and then all of a sudden, like one day he was just gone. Like, ugh. So, so you had yeah. personally had your hand in helping it out. Yeah, exactly. And then just constantly keeping an eye on it to make sure it didn't happen again or like flagging the burrow and, you know, letting the lawnmower guy know <laughs> there's a burrow right here. Um, yeah. So that's Are it's nature. Any- estimates as far as how many survive now to see one year or maturity even so um it's you know like 0.001 or something that survived maturity um so it's really low yeah reproducing year after year or are they years old um yeah so they we think that they're either reproducing every year maybe reproducing every other year 
Um, but we're not really sure. Like it's possible that they're double clutching. It's possible that they might be like laying twice in a year, kind of like sea turtles, um, where they would lay potentially twice and then not lay again for a couple of years. But we haven't studied gopher tortoises that long to really know, you know, much. And so that's, I don't think that's something that we know yet. So see another thing you could study forever. Yeah, there's a lot lot we have left to learn. So are there job opportunities out there to do that? I think that's a really good question. Um, As far as like actually paid opportunities, I'm not sure. It's nothing that I've found yet because that would be awesome. Um, You know, there are definitely like grad student opportunities to be able to study those things. But as far as jobs, um, I'm not sure. Like the money is probably more in the bears and the yeah. that. Yeah, potentially. That yeah. Yeah. What is anything as far as your take on the wildlife in general in Florida? I mean, how do you feel about all the craziness and the invite us to Amanda's TED talk about Florida wildlife? <laughs> um so you, your question is like if in the field? Yeah, like, and what do you feel like, especially invasive seems so prevalent down there in South Florida? Invasive species, oh gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's tough. Like, it, I do feel like the people that are working on invasive species are, I don't envy their job. I think it's a really tough job to do, um, but it's something that has to happen. I think that the removal of the invasive species is really important. Um, you know, it does have an impact. So we even have invasive animals that are using gopher tortoise burrows. Um, and so sometimes they're, you know, like, uh, even just things like red invasive fire ants, um, that could, you know, like they might build their nests in the burrow aprons and that's where gopher tortoises lay their nests. And so when they hatch, they tend to like the hatchlings. So they will eat hatchlings, um, um, or other things like the tegus are also using burrows. Um, so, yeah, it's an issue not only for gopher tortoises, but for a lot of other native wildlife. So um, I think it's really important that we do manage invasive species. Um, yeah. Do you see any? I mean, especially the tegus seem super destructive, but have you seen any within the areas that you're studying? I've, I haven't seen any tegus. Um, I have seen, I know that they're there. I, I don't think that the tegus are at my field sites, but I've seen, um, a lot of other invasive lizards. So things that I've recorded have been, um, like night anoles and, um, curly tail lizards, um, greenhouse frogs are common ones that are using burrows, but things that I'm seeing a lot of iguanas, um, yeah, green iguanas and like, yeah, I I feel like there's just so many that it's like crazy, like uh, Cuban frogs. I don't know. There's so many that I feel like it's like mostly what I see, mo- like most of the wildlife that I see in my area um, at, at my home where I grew up. Um, now, like it used to be um, green tree frogs and um, green anoles and things like that. And now that's like very rare rarely what I'm saying like now it's just like um Cuban anole or Cuban frogs um brown anoles um yeah it's crazy that just in our lifetime how much it's changed like yeah just like really yeah 
in a couple of years, like when I lived in Colorado and I was like, just visiting, I was like, I could already see like the change. Like I was like, I'd never see green tree frogs anymore. And like, now it's mostly like a lot of cane toads. Like it's crazy. So that's mostly what, that's mostly the wildlife that I see in my backyard. It's pretty frustrating to see that change. And, and that change there, like quick. Yeah. Is there anything that can be done about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should be working on the removal. And so I think it's important to, um, you know, know what these animals look like and be able to identify them. And um, and I think that, you know, it's okay. It's, you know, learn how to maybe humanely euthanize them. So Is that something that you have to do if you find them at your field site? Yeah, it's something that we do do. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I do express like that it does need to be humane. I feel like there are also animals that need to be treated um, with kindness and it's not their fault they're here. Um, but, but we do want to like time. preserve, as, right. as a conservationist, I think it's important to like preserve the natural habitat. So. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. what you were going to say something? I was not. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so when you are in the field and doing everything. I mean, what are the things that you most like to see besides tourists? could be anywhere. The things that I most, sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah, yeah, as, besides COVID tortoises, what are what are your favorite things to see? Oh, um, my favorite things to see, hmm. This, like, oh, I don't know, I feel like I, it's like, it changes every single day. <laughs> um, I love seeing coyotes. I really love coyotes. Um, I love seeing bobcats. Um, and I love seeing diamondback rattlesnakes. I think those are like my top three. Um, yeah, snakes for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think those are, I think those are my top three. I see coyotes pretty frequently. Um, and I hear them really frequently. And so I really love, I really love seeing them. I think they're really cool. Yeah, I think someone, that, um, go ahead. Sorry. Someone just posted, um, I don't know if you saw, someone got a picture of a Florida panther recently in Florida. Oh, I've never seen one. I would love to see one. I've never seen one in the wild. And that would be a dream come true for me to see one. How rare would that be to see one? It's extremely rare. They're so um, secretive and so and they're so they do not want anything to do with people and so yeah it's, it would be extremely rare to see a Florida panther I mean there's people that work with them and and very rarely or maybe never see them in the wild yeah what does work with them mean does that mean like setting up a trail camera is there anything yeah, most people, that? yeah that's pretty much as close as most people will get to them is is trail camera photos so, and they're, they're not at my field site. So I, I don't think that there's really a chance for me to see them or get, catch them on my, um, trail cameras, but, um, gosh, that would be a dream. That would be awesome. And are they, are they mostly in the Everglades? Yeah. So they're mostly in the Everglades and they do travel further North. Um, I, and I think that they even found one like, more in North Florida, maybe Ocala. I could be wrong, um, but I do feel like it's probably not as common for them to be up there. But 
Yeah. Sorry, we just had to That's change okay. the sound. We have been not using our mics the whole time. So what was it? Uh, what was it on? Oh. It was on the computer. I was wondering. Okay. It still works, but oh, no. <laughs> I heard you fine. So now we. So now we sound better. Sorry, guys. <laughs> You know, this is only episode 100 and something. We'll, <laughs> well, it. it's like we can't hear when we yeah. sound bad. But Maybe whatever. we can. Whatever. So, um, <laughs> other Florida stuff. Are you, do you plan on continuing to uh, research? I mean, do you want to stay in Florida? would like to stay in the southeast but not necessarily florida um i really just really like the the habitat of like the coastal plains in the southeast and so yeah if i could you know i don't know somewhere in the southeast but honestly i'm open to anywhere um i like if i found a really cool job like out west heck yeah um yeah, I don't really, especially love cold weather. So somewhere that I can stay warm most of the year. And you said your family is in Puerto Rico. Um, yeah. So actually, my parents are in Florida, um, but I do have family in Puerto Rico. So yeah. Oh, so you are just a warm weather person. I am. <laughs> I grew up in the warm weather, and I just yeah, I want to stay in the warm weather. <laughs> and luckily, all the cool stuff likes the warm weather too. So you exactly. Exactly. <laughs> is there anywhere though that you want to travel that you haven't? I like yeah. don't even know how to answer this question because I feel like I want to go everywhere. Yeah. I it's like I I think the top of my list right now is probably seeing the Amazon. Um I think that would definitely be the top of my list. And I haven't been to Costa Rica and I'd love to go to Costa Rica. Um really anywhere in Central and South America. Um, but also I would love to go to Alaska and like, I don't know, I just, this was Alps, like I will go anywhere. So would, would that be like for the, obviously Costa Rica has such a density of reptiles and amphibians, but yeah. Alaska I'm assuming would be bears. So yeah, uh, would exactly. that be just to see animals or are you yeah. interested in the culture as well? Oh, I'm interested in everything. I like, I love learning about culture every time I go somewhere. And so that's probably like. Yeah, food is like top priority, food and culture, and then animals. Uh, what's the food in Alaska? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Salmon? I don't know. Seal fat, you know, delicacies. I think Costa Rica is probably the best spot than good food and, yeah, and animals. Have to but if you're out in the field, you just have to eat rice and beans or something. I could eat I, rice and beans I every day. Eat, that's basically basically what I eat every day. Same. It's like totally a Puerto Rican dish. So I'm like rice and beans is like what I live off of. So yeah, <laughs> perfect. Change it up a little bit. Yeah, it's crazy how like um, like I remember just talking to people who've gone on expeditions and the amount of people that have survived on just rice. Is yeah. Alarming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like they so literally just take out rice and beans and you can survive for a very, very long time. <laughs> I, but that's like, so in Madagascar, that's basically what we had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner rice and beans every single day, three meals. Like breakfast was taking rice and like making it really mushy and maybe putting a little bit of sugar in it or honey. And that was your breakfast. And then and then lunch and dinner were like rice and beans, just that. And 
that's what I had for four months. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So how does it feel after four months? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I came back and I just like ate everything. I was like, <laughs> I want like freezer pizza. Like I don't even care. Just hamburgers. <laughs> right. <laughs> mac and cheese. <laughs> yeah. I pretty much just ate everything when I came back. Like even just like desserts. I was like, I, I want something like sweet, you know? <laughs> everything you couldn't have while you yeah, were there so true. So and true. we often ask people who have traveled a lot or just guests in general have you eaten it what's the weirdest thing you've eaten the weirdest thing i've eaten um i don't know if i've done anything super crazy but i've eaten a lot of bugs um roaches and prepared things. or just straight up yeah no <laughs> prepared <laughs> i don't think i'm wondering <laughs> Um, I don't know, maybe the roaches in Madagascar. Madagascar. Yeah. And Thailand, Thailand has some good roaches. Thailand was good because like they would actually, um, they had really good spices with their insects. And so like, I actually thought they prepared it really well. That's something I never thought I'd hear. (laughs) Good, good insect spice. Okay. (laughs) It was like, I don't know. Sometimes it'd be like cooked with, with like fried and like curry. And I don't know. It's just, it was actually pretty good. Just like remove the legs. It's not too bad. <laughs> Is it just something to where you just keep it out of your mind that you're eating a bug? Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't know if it really bothered me, like, that it was, I don't know. I would just <laughs> think, like, the exoskeleton and little legs get stuck in your teeth and it just sounds disgusting. Yeah, I mean, it didn't, it didn't really, like, you remove the legs. They mostly remove the legs. Um, so I don't know. I didn't really think that it was that big of a deal. <laughs> You've never eaten any sort of insect? Um, hmm. I don't know. I think I may have eaten like cricket protein. Like I had a cricket protein bar, but that was like, mm-hmm. it's very first world preparation, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I went to like the insectarium and had like. Yeah, me too. In, yeah. in Louisiana. Uh-huh. Oh, I love it. Wait, you've been Wait, there? Explain what yeah, that was like my favorite place. Oh, I love We literally <laughs> loved it so much that um, was it senior year of high school, we had to take a science class and we were done with all our main ones. So I took environmental science. Sorry for environmental science out there. That was such a bullshit class. I, I took it was it, uh, the most bull- was AP. It was the it was oh, there was an AP year. option. I wasn't going to do that. I don't mind. It was the most bullshit class ever. But because I love the insectarium so much, I convinced our teacher to take us as seventeen and eighteen year old people to the insectarium for oh children. For children. For, it's definitely for children. <laughs> <laughs> it surely is. I love it. <laughs> and it's just, I don't know, it's all about bugs. And they have this little four, 4D theater. You learn thing. about them and then you eat them? And then you, yeah, and then they have a butterfly place in there. And you get yeah. to like, the greenhouse and everything. And it's just, I thought everyone knew what an insectarium is. I assume well, every I place assume. has that. But yeah. It's, it's literally like a zoo of insects. It was, yeah. I don't know, I thought it was really cool. And I hate, you know, I hate bugs, but like, I don't know, it was really cool. And then I ate a chocolate covered uh, cricket, I guess, or whatever. And they have like lollipops with bugs in them and everything. Yeah, they have like cookies with like a cricket on top. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, they have a salsa, like a mango chutney. I remember that. (laughs) It's so good though. I forgot about that. that. That was actually good. (laughs) 
had like mealworms in it. It was like interesting. <laughs> I don't know. The insect area is cool. I would I would try them all, I suppose. I mean, you don't it doesn't taste like a bug. Like they it really doesn't. It's just the thought of it. It's like in your head, but I I don't know. It doesn't taste bad. I guess we could much more efficiently eat crickets than we could uh you know cows or something it's a lot yeah. easier to reproduce a cricket with a yeah, lot less sure. environmental impact yeah i mean i'm not yeah. saying when you'll pick one up and eat it but <laughs> when you cover it in chocolate or you fry it and put some put some good spices on yeah. it in thailand <laughs> then uh then we're talking <laughs> That could be your new business venture, Amanda, getting the insect spices to America. Seriously. Yeah. I think it's like literally just like curry powder. But. <laughs> it's not like you're going to be Columbus going there. I don't know. for the Indies to pick up. <laughs> Who knows what they have in Thailand? Wow. Yeah, the internet and transportation. I mean, if I type in insect spices, Thailand, I don't think I'm going to find it. it maybe so not. Powder. Maybe not. <laughs> powders and powder. Who knows? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but it has been our two hours, but our actual last question we usually ask people is if someone wanted to reach out to you, what is the best way they could get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. I love it when people do. Um, well, they can find me on Instagram as Biophilia Amanda. Um, or they can, and I'm also on Twitter, the same handle. Um, or they can send me an email to Amanda Hips, and it's the number four at gmail.com. Sweet. So and always feel free. I'm here. <laughs> um, and if anyone wants to reach out to us, as always, Port City Pythons on Instagram, Facebook, not Twitter. Um, we have a Twitter, don't but don't me. talk. Don't. Talk. We're not going to answer you. On I this. just, I just answered some <laughs> tweets from like four months ago that I didn't know that I got. Yeah. <laughs> again, don't, don't message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're not getting the stupid MeWe stuff I've been seeing around. I don't even know what MeWe is, but we're not doing it. It's like the new Facebook, and it makes. I, I want to talk about that, but it's going to be a loaded conversation. Oh God! Okay, maybe we'll have to do a separate podcast about whatever <laughs> the Facebook mealy drama is. But those, okay, back to what I was saying. Contact with Port City Pythons on Instagram, Facebook, our website, portcitypythons.com. Our email is and buy a shirt, portcitypythons.com. Cool. The proceeds go to OCSC. Email is theportcitypythons at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> Do we yeah. have any things? Yeah, that's it, right? We will see you guys next week. I don't know. Yes. Yes, we will. I don't we'll know what day. talking about the Facebook Oculus. Oh, well, okay. No, no, I don't know. We'll probably have an actual show. But thank <laughs> yeah. you, Amanda, for hanging out with us and educating us about the Gopher tours. And other than that, Thank you guys so much for listening and we will catch you later.